Acts chapter 20. And this Sunday, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through to 38. If you're new, uh, we have been, as of beginning of 2020, we've been looking at the life of the early church through the book of Acts, and it's been an incredible experience. It's reminded us every Sunday of who we are as a church and what God has called us to. Um, and so this Sunday, we arrive at an interesting, a really interesting episode um, in, in our study of Acts. And so I'm going to read, and you guys can follow along as I read. Acts chapter 20, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 28. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So emotional. Let's pray, God. Give us eyes 
to see. Give us ears to hear. And give us hearts that are willing to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my 38 years of living, um, one of the things that I just continue to find really difficult in my life is saying goodbye. Um, 11 years ago, Eleanor and I said goodbye to our family before boarding an 11-hour flight from London Heathrow to Los Angeles. A few months ago, Eleanor and I, our family, said goodbye to our home in Pacific Beach um, in order for us to move um, to La Jolla. It was sad and it was hard, even though we were moving to a better and bigger home that suited our family. It was hard leaving our small little granny home in Pacific Beach. It was hard to leave our street. I remember the first, the last few days we were there and we took a little walk around the neighborhood and we saw some of the neighbors. It was just hard to move five minutes away. It just was, okay? <laughs> the thing about goodbyes is that they never get easier. Um, I don't do well with goodbyes. I find them extremely difficult, and I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Our passage this morning, as you could tell, as we read through it, um, is a passage about goodbyes. It's the Apostle Paul's farewell to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. And as you can imagine, as we read through it, you could feel just how emotional it was. But unlike most goodbyes, this farewell speech includes um, advice and wisdom that has stood the test of time. It's wisdom and advice for the ages. If you remember last week, we looked at Paul's um, seven days in the city of Troas. In Troas, he was involved in something quite extraordinary. It was crazy. A young man named Eutychus um, fell down from a third floor window while listening to the apostle Paul preach. As, amazing, as like crazy as that was, it got even way more crazy than that because what happens next is Paul goes downstairs and brings him back to life. And so after his time in Troas, Paul and his team resumed their journey to Jerusalem, opting for a layover in Miletus. This layover in Miletus last, lasted several days. Um, if you know a bit of the history of Miletus, it was a harbor city, and it was located um, about 30 miles south of Ephesus. Why am I giving you this information? This is why. If you remember, the Apostle Paul, okay, before we've got to this section in Acts, he spent um, three whole years in Ephesus. And while he was in in Ephesus, God did some incredible things in and through Paul, okay? He did. He healed the sick. He preached the gospel. He even, like, just, he did incredible things there. And so while Paul is in Miletus, um, he's thinking to himself, this is going to be the last time I'm going to be in this region because he has... Uh, an idea that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's probably not going to be back in this region. And so, wanting to make the most of his few days in Miletus, he sends word requesting um, the leaders of the church in Ephesus to come and meet him for one last time. Not knowing exactly what this meeting is about, the Ephesian leaders are eager to know as they arrive. 
at the venue for the meeting. You can imagine as they walk in, um, they're just eager to know. They're not sure what Paul is going to say. They know he's going to Jerusalem, but they're not entirely sure what this meeting is about. And so I'm sure they walk in and they're very much like, hey, Paul, how are you doing? You all right? Everything okay? Paul's like, just have a seat and we'll start in a minute. And as soon as everyone is seated, Paul begins the meeting um, with a reflection on his time of ministry in Ephesus. Look at verse 18 again. It says, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Paul um, is is reminding them, you remember when I first came, how I lived among you. So he's talking about his life and his ministry in there. Then Paul begins to talk about how despite resistance and opposition and threats, he served them faithfully, okay, and did not shrink from telling them what they needed to hear, even though it was hard for them to hear it. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not be quick to move, right, away from this verse. And the reason is um, what he's just said is a really important statement because it captures the overall purpose of Paul's ministry. Okay, verse 21. Verse 21 captures the overall purpose of Paul's ministry and his overall purpose his ministry is to do this is to persuade everyone everywhere of their need to repent from sin and turn to God and have faith in Jesus Christ that's the overall purpose of his ministry and so after reflecting on his ministry in Ephesus and his overall purpose in life, Paul then talks a bit about his trip to Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. He says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Did you guys catch that? <laughs> Paul's certain Jerusalem is where he needs to go next, okay? It says he's constrained by the Spirit, okay? He's compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But the interesting thing is he's not entirely sure what exactly will happen to him when he gets there, okay? He knows where he needs to go, but he doesn't fully know what will happen to him when he gets there. For all you A-type planner people out there, I know this is freaking you out. Okay, the idea that, okay, I'm supposed to go somewhere, but I'm not sure what's going to happen when I get there. But based on past experience, Paul has an idea of what to expect. Look at verse 23. He says, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. (laughs) This makes sense, doesn't it? As Paul's been going from every city from city to city, preaching the gospel, what has happened to him? He's encountered opposition and persecution. He just has. So he's like, look, if I experienced opposition and persecution in the past, there's a good chance I will experience the same thing in the future. But what's fascinating is that even though jail and suffering is what he's expecting in Jerusalem, he's totally fine with it. He's not fazed by it at all. Like, how do we know this? Look at verse 24. Look what he says there. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself 
if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Again, this is just one verse, but it's so dynamic. Look, this week, this is what I want you to do, okay? I want you to take this verse, okay? And I just want you to like spend 10 hours with it. I'm kidding. An hour, two hours. But if you can do 10 hours, great. It's incredible, okay? In other words, this is what Paul is saying. The purpose of my life, the overall purpose of my existence, is to use it for what Jesus has called me to. And that is to preach the gospel which is all about the wonderful grace of God. Are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? If you are, the truth is Paul's purpose in life should also be your purpose in life. To tell everyone everywhere about the good news of the wonderful grace of God. If you're a Christian, okay, um, the purpose of your existence is to simply, if I can be, just make it super simple, is to know Jesus and not just to stop there, but to make Jesus known. This means, like, if you're a business person and you're in business, um, you, you're not ultimately here to further your career. This means if you're a student, you're not primarily in San Diego to get good grace that would land you that top job. If you're here and you're in the military, your ultimate aim in life is not just to serve our country. If you're a healthcare worker, your overarching goal in life is not just to help people stay healthy. If you're a mom or dad, happy Mother's Day, moms. If you're a mom or dad, your primary goal in life is not just to raise good and respectful kids, but if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, your ultimate purpose in life is to know Jesus and make him known. The truth is, whatever you're involved in exists as a platform for you to make Jesus known. And so, who or what are you living for? What should be your ultimate aim in life? This is what it should be. Verse 24. But I do not count, account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's God's will for you. That's your ultimate purpose in life. The leaders of the church in Ephesus listened carefully as Paul reflected on his life and ministry. So you can imagine they're in this room, they're probably sitting on the floor in a circle, and Paul is talking about his life and ministry, and they're listening, and they're nodding, and they're agreeing, because why? Paul's just not talking air, right? He's talking truth. They've seen him testify. They've seen him give his life to the gospel. And Paul says something. That not only captures their attention, but something that they've been dreading. Look at verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul's basically saying, hey, I, I, I have a feeling you guys are not 
going to see me again. And so after sharing with the Ephesian elders the sad news that they'll probably not see him again, um, this is what Paul does next. He transitions from his life of ministry, okay, to instructions on how they can faithfully minister to the people God has given them. In other words, this is what Paul is saying. Look, this is how I've been faithful as a leader. Now let me tell you how you can be faithful as leaders of the church in Ephesus. And the advice Paul gives them on how they can be faithful is what we're going to be looking at next. But before we do, I have a feeling, I have a hunch, that some of you are very close to checking out right now. And this makes sense because you can't. You're sitting here and you're thinking, I can't possibly see how advice to church leaders in the first century can be helpful for me today. Okay, it's 2021. I live in San Diego. Okay, I'm a student. I'm this, I'm that. Um, how can Paul's advice to some leaders in Ephesus thousands of years ago um, apply to me. I get it. Okay, you're, you're not a church leader. You don't live in the first century, and so it makes sense to feel Paul's advice doesn't seem to have any relevance for you. But before you check out, okay, you're all wearing masks. And if you were wearing shades, you could like sleep, and I wouldn't know it. But before you put on your shades <laughs> and check out, let me help you see why you shouldn't. One of the most fascinating things about Paul's farewell address to the leaders of the church in Ephesus is that it contains valuable truths for believers today. Although Paul is speaking to leaders of a church thousands of years ago, it still has relevance for us today. And so, stick with me here. Let us have a look at how these instructions and advice Paul gives uh, has in, applies to our life today right? Um, let's have a look at it. In fact, this is what we're going to see. We will see that the advice Paul gives reveals several truths about us, okay? All right, so, and so the first truth this whole farewell speech reveals about us is that we are greatly loved. We are greatly loved. Look at verse 28. It says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, which he obtained with his own blood, okay? So Paul begins by saying, hey, pay close attention to yourself and to the flock. The act of paying attention um, uh, can be likened to how parents watch their kids, okay? I'm a parent, and if you're around me, I am very much aware, even if I'm speaking to you, I'm aware of where my kids are at. Okay, Eleanor does a better job than I do in this. There have been times where Eleanor's talking and one of our kids are misbehaving and she's looking at someone, then she just goes, hey, stop. And the kids are like, what? We are fully aware. And so, um, in a similar way, Paul is urging the Ephesian leaders to possess the same awareness to themselves and to the people God has instructed to them. 
And so the question, next question is, what then is the motivation? Why should these leaders pay careful attention to themselves and to their congregation? This is why. Because, listen carefully, the people they've been given the honor to oversee were obtained with the blood of Jesus. You're like, what does all of this mean? If you're here and you're a Christian, let me remind you of one of the most valuable and significant truths about you. You are greatly loved by the God of the universe. No matter what you're going through, no matter how painful the season you're in, all right? No matter how discouraged or frustrated or weary or disenchanted or cynical you are, the truest thing about you is that you are greatly loved by the God of the universe. How do I know this? Why am I telling you, why am I confident of God's great love and care for you? It tells us, it tells us in verse 28, the end of it. Because he obtained you with his own blood. Again, what does this all mean? This is what it means. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to experience severe suffering a humiliating death and a staggering resurrection. And he did it all for you so that if you believe in him, you may obtain forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God, adoption into his family, and eternal life. And the interesting thing is God was able to obtain all of this for you. Oh, God was able to do all of these and much more. Not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus has purchasing power. Not only to obtain you, but also to cleanse you, wash you, sanctify you, and to make you righteous and holy before God. Your only comfort in life, um, in this life, is that you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood. Your only hope. For the life to come is that heaven does not deal in dollars, pounds, euros, or even gold or silver, says Anthony Carter. But the only currency that is of value in heaven and throughout eternity is the blood of Christ. It's the only currency that is going to get you in. This is why you're greatly loved by the God of the universe. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, you guys know it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God greatly loves you? 
and that he demonstrated his love for you through the shed blood of his son Jesus Christ. King's Cross, may this truth, may God help us understand this valuable and significant truth. May it shape how you feel, how you view God, how you relate to God, and how you live. And so, we've seen that the first truth Paul's farewell speech reveals about us is that we are greatly loved. Yeah, we're greatly loved. The second truth it reveals about us is that we are in grave danger. We are in grave danger. Look at verse 29. It says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In case you were wondering, Paul's not talking about literal wolves here. Okay, just making that clear. Um, It's a metaphor that he's using to describe certain individuals or belief systems that are actively opposed um, to God's church. And these wolf-like intruders are likened to a pack of fierce wolves who are intent on devouring the flock. And when you see the word flock there, again, it's not talking about sheep. Okay, in this context, it's talking about members of the church. That is, if you're a Christian, it's talking about you. You're, you're a flock. And it's saying here, Paul is saying, when I'm gone, okay, fierce wolves will come in among you. And they will not spare you. This is a warning that we're in grave danger. We're in danger from wolf-like intruders who will attempt to force their way into our church family. And what are they here to do? Hang out? No, they're here to steal, kill, and destroy. In a similar way, I mean, if a wolf finds herself in the midst of, you know, a bunch of fluffy, juicy sheep, you know, the wolf is not just going to just hang out. They're going to be merciless. So Paul is saying, in the same way, as a church family, as a church community, we're in grave danger from the outside. There are wolf-like individuals or belief systems that will try and infiltrate our church in order to deceive and destroy. But even worse, there will also be danger from inside the church. Paul goes on to predict um, the appearance of something even more subtle and frightening than wolves. He warns that false teachers will arise from within the congregation, from within um, our church. Look, if you don't believe me, all right, look at verse 30. It's there, look. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. All right, I've got a question for you. What comes to mind when you think of a false teacher? Just your idea of a false teacher, what is it? Maybe it's some dude dressed in expensive designer clothing, flying his private jet on his way to a Bible crusade. Maybe your idea of a false teacher is um, like a sleazy car salesman 
who's not trying to sell you a dodgy car, but he's trying to sell you the prosperity gospel. Or maybe when you think of a false teacher, you kind of picture a politician. Nice teeth, nice smile, suited and booted. But can you really trust what they say? Regardless of what your idea of a false teacher is, what's important to know is that when the Bible talks about false teachers, okay, the emphasis is less on what they look like and more on what they say. Here, Paul warns us of the danger of false teachers emerging from within the church. And look how he describes them. He describes them as men or women who, who speak twisted things. Who speak twisted things. Well, what does it mean to speak twisted things? Alexander Strouch, who wrote one of the best books on leadership, this is how he helps us. He helps us understand what twisted speech is. He says, They will not out and out deny the truth of God's word, for that would be too obvious and ineffective. Instead, they will pervert truth. They will mix truth with error, reinterpret the truth, and change the meaning of words to give the illusion of truth. And it gets worse because as a result of their twisted speech, look at look what will happen. All right? Look, look, look at the last part of verse 30. It says, Because of this, they will draw away the disciples after them. These false teachers twist God's truth and in doing so they draw disciples away from Christ, away from our supreme teacher by intentionally twisting and manipulating God's word. Okay, so one of the ways, okay, we can tell if someone is a false teacher is when they twist and pervert the truth. And, and as I talk about this, I, I want you guys to be careful with this because the tendency could be um, for us to get trigger happy with anyone that says something odd and weird and off-key. Okay, so for example, we're in community group and someone says something, you know, some, some sweet member of our church just says something a little off, okay? And then we start thinking they are a false teacher, Oh my gosh, they are twisted. You know, and then we get weird and paranoid. And every time we see someone, say, you know, it, just, it can get weird. So we have to be careful. But if there's an ongoing twisting um, of truth and a lack of humility, okay, in being corrected, there could be a good chance. There's a false teacher in our midst, okay? So just wanted to say that. And so we've seen that one of the key characteristics of a false teacher is that they twist truth. And so the question is, but, but what are some of the other characteristics of a false teacher? How can we spot a false teacher when we see one? Are there any other characteristics? Okay, Tim Chalice, he's this popular Christian blogger. Um, he gives us the following comprehensive characteristic of a false teacher. He writes this, that false teachers teach what blatantly contradicts an essential teaching of the Christian faith. Okay, number two, False teachers use Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. They're only interested in the Christian faith only if it fills their wallet. Number three, a false teacher um, will use their position of leadership to take advantage of other people. Number four, a false teacher will use false doctrine to disrupt or destroy a church. They bring strife, not love. They generate factions, not unity. They desire discord 
and not harm any. And lastly, a false teacher cares nothing for what God wants and everything for what men want. He is the man pleaser rather than the God pleaser. They crave popularity and praise from the world. And so these are some of the common characteristics of a false teacher revealed in scripture. Every new generation has to face its own fierce wolves. Every new generation has to encounter its own false teachers. What Paul was doing here was preparing leaders for future attacks by cunning predators who intend to devour God's flock and distort the truths of the Bible, of the gospel. And as Paul was preparing the first century church in Ephesus, he was preparing our church in San Diego in 2021. King's Cross Church. As we seek to be a church family on mission with Jesus in San Diego, we will continue to be in grave danger. We will encounter fierce wolves who are bent on carrying out deceptive and destructive work among us. And we will also encounter false teachers who will make their way, who are already in our church. And what they will do is that they will arise and begin to pervert and twist the truth and will eventually lead people astray. That's the reality. And I love the Bible because it's super honest, isn't it? Okay, when you become a Christian, you just don't enter into this Christian bubble where everything is fine and everything is safe. The world we live in is broken. We will experience much suffering. But on top of all of that, we will be in great danger. There will be ongoing attacks. There will be fears and violent, wolf-like individuals who will intrude and infiltrate our church in order to destroy and there will be false teachers who will subtly twist and pervert God's truth in order to lead some of us astray. How are you guys doing? Some of you are like, I'm good, man. Totally fine. But I'm sure some of you right now are feeling heavy and fearful. The thoughts of individuals who are bent on destroying members of the church is kind of freaking you out right now. You're afraid. You feel powerless. You're like, who, what, when, how? As concerning as this is, the question we now have to ask is, what will help? What will protect us? Apart from getting an idea of who or what could be a false teacher, what else can we do to protect ourselves? What will enable us to survive constant attacks from the inside and outside? This is what I want us to turn to next. So far from Paul's farewell speech to a group of leaders many years ago, we've discovered that we are greatly loved. Not only that, we've discovered that we are in grave danger. Lastly, okay, we'll see that we need God. 
Look at verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul commends them okay, to God and to the word of his grace. You remember what's happening. He's saying, look, you, you guys, you guys, you're going to be in great danger. And what does he do next, right? He, he says in verse 31, okay, be alert. But then he goes on to commend them to God and to his word. All right, to commend someone is to entrust someone or something to the care or protection of someone else. Parents will at times commend or entrust their kids to the care of a babysitter. Okay, most of us entrust our money to the bank. We entrust our lives to medical professionals. In the same way, Paul, before he leaves, wants to entrust the church in Ephesus not to the care of the leaders there, but ultimately to God. Paul is basically saying, look, in light of everything I've said, don't rely on me, don't rely on your leaders, but fully rely on God for your future well-being. Alexandra Strout says this, although Paul was leaving, he knew that God and his word would be there to sustain the elders. With full confidence, Paul could entrust the elders to no, um, to no better source of strength and safekeeping than the eternal, faithful God and the life-giving, soul-nourishing word of his grace. King's Cross Church, what will cause us to grow in our love and attention for Christ, what will protect us from the many dangers out there? This is the answer. The one true God of the Bible who is not some undefined shadowy figure hiding in the sky. He is not one God among many gods but he is the infinite, personal, truing God of the Bible. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of the entire universe. Without him, nothing exists or is contained. He is, an he is in absolute control of all of life's affairs and details. He is the self-existing, self-revealing, almighty God. He is the one true, incomparable God. There is no other God like him. And is this same God who we can say, is for us and our protection. He's a God that we need, not only for salvation, but for our protection. And so, look, it's simple, right? Don't rely on me or the other leaders, okay? For your protection and growth, our role, our role is this. We want to faithfully declare to you the whole counsel of God. Our role is to continue to point you to Jesus. Our role is that every time we gather here and every time we meet, we want to magnify who God is because he is the one you need. In verses 32 and 35, Paul talks and exhorts them to approach the ministry with a given attitude. And then as we read earlier, um, they kneel and pray. Um, there's much weeping um, on the part of the elders, and Paul embraces and kisses them, and um, he gets on a ship and sails away. So much more to talk about, but... I think this morning what we discovered is sufficient. We discovered that Paul's farewell speech to a group of leaders um, thousands of years ago 
reveals several truths about us. And those truths were this. Um, we are greatly loved. We are in grave danger. Um, we need God because God is our source of strength. And God is our everything. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. God, just as you guided and protected the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt and brought them and provided a miraculous escape for them through the parting of the Red Sea and um, to the promised land. God, you promise to be faithful to us and you continue to be with us every step of the way. God, you have provided for our every need. And your commitment, your faithfulness to us is not just in the past, but it's in the present and it will be in the future. And so, God, as we've considered how much you love us, may your love constrain us. May your love compel us. May your love um, shape how we relate to you and relate to one another. And God, as we looked at the fact that, man, like we're in great danger. There is danger all around us. God, um, help us to be reminded that because there's danger doesn't mean you have left us. Because there's danger doesn't mean we are destined for destruction. Yes, there is danger, but you continue to be faithful in protecting us. God, you are faithful because you're faithful is the reason why we will trust everything you've promised to us in Jesus' name we pray amen amen before